0: Of this theme of hope makes me think back a few years to Billy Graham before he passed away. A few years ago, he did this campaign called My Hope America, if you remember that. And um, one, of the, one of the videos that he did, he made this comment, he said, uh, he said, our country is in great need of spiritual awakening. He was 95 years old when he said that. And his message has a familiar resonance. He also said, There have been times that I've wept as I've gone from city to city and I've seen how far people have wandered from God. And wandering we are. Wandering through life, searching for what it all means, why it all matters for anyone who cares about us. Every human being is on a search for destiny. We want to become destiny. We intrinsically strive for or are inspired to greatness. And no one wants to be second best. No one wants to come in third or fourth or fifth place. There's this intrinsic need for significance in all of us. And every one of us also is on a search for community. We want to belong to something. To someone. We have an intrinsic craving for love for a connection, a relationship with someone and every human being on the search on this is on a search for meaning. We want to be, something to believe in. We have a need for truth inside of us, built into us to know that there's more to this life than just eating and sleeping and working and dying. We're seeking and we're searching for someone to make us feel important, like we matter. And that someone is God. Yet for all of our seeking, we don't seek for Him. For all of our wandering, we don't move toward Him naturally. Because we're drawn toward everything else as human beings. The Bible tells us that none of us really seeks after God, not even one. Tells us that the very answers we seek, we run away from. We have all wandered away like sheep, each of us has turned to his own way, said the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The fact is no more apparent than at Christmas time because we seek meaning many people in materialism, wanting what we think is our fair share, only we have lost all sense of what we actually deserve. We seek meaning in artistic expression and we get lost in it. And we seek significance in our vanity, whether we have naturally curly hair, or expensive clothes, or dressing ourselves up, or letting ourselves go, we seek answers through therapy and yet still come up empty and wonder why. For all of our searching and seeking, ironically, the prophecies in the Bible surrounding the birth of Christ indicate something far different. The whole message of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is not that we seek God but that it is God who is seeking us. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Just a couple of verses before that, Matthew says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's seeking us. And the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 2 says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. He's seeking us. See, Christmas is about God seeking you. He's seeking to have a personal relationship with you and me. Jesus in his adult life gives us the definitive statement about who's seeking who. When he said these words, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In Luke 19.10. And the Bible says we are lost, and we are. We're lost in this search for meaning and for belonging and for truth and for community. We've wandered away from home. As the scriptures say, there's no one who always does what is right, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who looks for God to help, for help. All have turned away. Together, everyone has become useless. There is no one who does anything good, not even one. Sounds like a pretty drab message, doesn't it? All have sinned and fallen far short of God's glory, the scripture says. And yet the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The T in the word Christmas reminds us of the cross that Jesus endured. The cost of our wandering and the answer for our longing That's what the Christmas story is about. Because we couldn't reach God, he came down and reached out to us by becoming one of us. He satisfied our search for truth. He is the truth. In John's gospel, we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, The grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He satisfies our need to belong. He came to his own and those who were his own, the scripture says, did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And that much used cliche that we've said so often is profoundly true, that the son of God became the son of man So that the sons of men can become sons of God. He satisfies our search for significance. God loved us so much, the Bible says, that he gave us his son. That whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. The familiarity of those words have desensitized our souls to the phenomenal force of their truth, haven't they? As well as the infinite scope of their blessing during this time of year, it may be easy for all of us to forget that the bigger purpose behind Bethlehem was Calvary. That the purpose of the manger was realized in the horrors of a cross. Here's the disturbing truth of Christmas as I once read it. The author writes, Christmas is necessary because I am a sinner. The incarnation reminds us of our desperate condition before a holy God. Now don't get me wrong, Christmas should be a wonderful celebration, he says, but properly understood, the message of Christmas confronts before it comforts. It disturbs before it delights. Here's the message of Christmas. He says, Christmas is about God the Father the offended party taking the initiative to send his only begotten son to offer his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we might be forgiven for our many sins. Christmas is disturbing. Another author put it this way. William Smith said, There is something truly comforting and warming about the Christmas story, but it comes from understanding the reality, not from denying it. Only those who have been profoundly disturbed to the point of deep repentance are able to receive the tidings of comfort, peace, and joy that Christmas proclaims. Have you been that profoundly disturbed? Enough to receive the tidings that Christmas proclaims? Because there are a few I'd like to remind us of today. I have no doubt that they will do their work. If you are spiritually comfortable, they will likely disturb you. If you are disturbed in your spirit by the state of your wandering soul, my hope is that they bring you comfort. Because I believe the promises of Christmas that we're about to look at today bring consolation to your soul. And the first one is this, very simply God is with us. Say it with me God is with us. This is the promise of personal identification of God with us. Isaiah 9 6. If you want a scripture passage to turn to, as you know, probably you figured out by now, I'm going to be all over the scriptures this morning. But Isaiah 9-6 could be a good base for us. It's one of the most familiar verses in the Bible foretelling the birth of Christ. These words have been included in Handel's Messiah. It's heard every year at this time. And as you hear them sung, as you may even sing the words yourself. Have you ever stopped to savor and meditate on the rich truth taught in these few words? If not, you're missing the greatest part of this Christmas season celebration. Isaiah 9.6 reads like this. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And he will; his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. One of the most astounding things to realize... Is that Isaiah issued this birth announcement about six or seven hundred years before Jesus was born? That's a long pregnancy. <laughs> Isaiah looked down through the centuries in anticipation of this amazing birth, not realizing himself whose birth this was. He didn't know who the Messiah was going to be. And conversely, we look back through. The centuries in celebration of this birth with a full realization of whose birth it was. We know who the Messiah is, don't we? We, like the woman at the well in John 4, have confirmation of who this Messiah is. Remember that conversation in John 4? The woman said to Jesus, she said, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, he's going to declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, and I love these words, I'd love to have Ben sitting there and hearing these words. I who speak to you am he. What a privilege that she had. Jesus is the Messiah, Isaiah spoke of in 9 6, chapter 9, verse 6. In this one simple verse, Messiah's humanity, his deity, and his lordship or his sovereignty are unveiled. All three of those things. Characteristics which were all attributed to Jesus in the angel's announcement in Luke 2, by the way, if you compare the two. What we're actually doing when we celebrate Christmas is confirming the very fact that Jesus is the Messiah. God with us, God in the flesh. The humanity of Jesus is assumed in Jesus Christ. Jesus was born born a child, it says in verse 6 here. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given. In one sense, it's easy for us to imagine Jesus as a child at Christmas time. Because it's been the way we've been brought up, right, in the church. It's a little harder, however, to realize that the Messiah, the Anointed One... The only one who could possibly save the entire world and you and me from consequences of sin was once a little baby just like us. It's hard to imagine the Messiah as a child, but he had to experience humanity from the diaper to the shroud in order to show us the way. He had to endure all the temptations, feel all the emotions, accept all the physical limitations that we face as men and women. And even though he remained sinless in order to be the perfect sacrifice, according to Hebrews chapter 4, he shouldered all the heaviness of our sin and guilt. Jesus was and is that Messiah. He was born a child and given as a son. He is God's gift to the world at large. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel." And we've already seen in Matthew in those verses in chapter 1 that the angel said to Mary, She will bear a son. Mary will bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. But in Luke 2, we read that the angel said to them, Behold, to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ. You know the word Christ means? Messiah. The Lord God. Here it is. A Savior, Jesus, who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord God. Those three things. As much as we focus on his infancy at this time of year, the greater, more astonishing truth of Christmas is that of his deity. Not only was the Messiah to be the Son of Man, but he was also the Son of God. Matthew clearly testifies that Jesus was that Messiah. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet That behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall name his, call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew corroborates Isaiah's prophecy and translates it to say, this is the fulfillment of it. If you could squeeze all the truths of Christmas into one phrase... If you could communicate the tremendous impact and universal importance of what Christmas means to mankind in three words, these would be the words. God with us. Not only is the humanity of Messiah assumed in Jesus, but the deity is also acknowledged in Jesus. These words of Isaiah Unto us a son is given implies Jesus' deity, believe it or not. Although Isaiah probably didn't understand it at the time. We know the truth of what his words suggest because of the overwhelming testimony of the entire New Testament. Jesus came as the son of God. And it's evidenced by many voices and many witnesses that Jesus is the son of God. It starts out with the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. The angel Gabriel identified Jesus as God's son in Luke chapter 1. Then John referred to him as God's son in John three sixteen, And you know that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only begotten son. Matthew chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17, we read these words, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens spoke these words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father called Jesus his Son. And in Matthew 11 and verse 27, Jesus himself said, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. That would be us. That's grace. Not only is Jesus the son of God, But this will help you when certain kinds of people come and knock on your door to try to turn you from the faith. But Jesus is also God the Son. He's not just the Son of God, but He's also God the Son. The whole context of these Hebrew words in Isaiah chapter 9, the names Isaiah uses to describe the Messiah, describe the very character of God Himself. And every one of them paint the portrait of Jesus Christ, the child in the cradle of Bethlehem. Isaiah 9, 6 implies that the Christ child is the mighty God. He's incomprehensible in his character. He's wonderful, Isaiah says. He's incontrovertible in his wisdom. He's counselor. He's incomparable in his power. He's the mighty God. And he's also infinite in his care for us. He's the eternal father. These are all names ascribed to Jesus by Isaiah. This child, this Messiah, is clearly over all things as the creator, preserver, and protector of all creation. He is truly God with us. The evidence in the scripture is overwhelming, yet there is no shortage of skepticism as evidenced by the comments of many people. How could God be with us when there is so much tragedy in the world? You've heard it, right? Maybe you've even said it. Either he doesn't care or he has no power to change anything. Richard Dawkins, for example, believes the universe has, quote, precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's depressing. Evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould describes humans as a, quote, a cosmic accident that would never arise again if the tree of life could be replanted, unquote. According to these and other modern scientists, we're no more than complex organisms compelled by selfish genes to act out of self-interest. Six years ago, In a couple of weeks, it will mark the six-year anniversary in the aftermath of Sandy Hook tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut. Philip Yancey addressed that town just after that happened. A town steeped in grief and offered the hope that God is with us in contrast to this new atheist view. Indeed, God was with them in the depths of their pain. And this is what he said. He says, referring to Richard Dawkins' comment, he said, is that what you've seen here? I asked those gathered the weekend after Christmas, the wounds fresh exactly two weeks after the mass shooting. As I stood before the group, Dawkins' description rang all the more hollow. I don't think that's what you've seen here, he said. I have felt an outpouring of grief and compassion and generosity not blind, pitiless indifference. I've seen acts of selflessness, not selfishness, in the school staff who sacrificed their lives to save children. In the sympathetic response of a community and a nation, I've seen a deep belief that the people who died mattered, that something of inestimable worth was snuffed out on December 14th. He said, tragedy rightly calls faith into question, but it also affirms faith. It is good news that we are not the random byproducts of a meaningless universe, but rather creations of a loving God who wants to live with us forever. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So in order to reconcile with his rebellious creation, that by entering our world, this son took on our sufferings, And temptations demonstrating in person that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates the familiar verse in John's prologue this way. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What kind of neighborhood did Jesus move into? Yancey poses. And he says, this neighborhood, as he's speaking to those people, he says, as Matthew reminds us, quote, a voice is heard in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's the neighborhood God moved into when he was born. The Christmas story includes a setting much like Newtown. In the end, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, lost a child too. God knows something of the grief that we feel. God has not abandoned us, he said, in our distress. Where is God when it hurts? God is now in the church. His delegated presence on earth. Indeed, the question might be rephrased, where is the church when it hurts? He says if the church does its job, people don't torment themselves with the question, where is God when it hurts? They know the answer. God becomes visible through God's people. Here is the truth about Christmas. In John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus wasn't just a picture of what God is like. Jesus was God himself, God with us. Exactly what Isaiah claimed in chapter 9, verse 6. He is incomprehensible in his character, incontrovertible in his counsel, incomparable in his power, infinite in his care, and he's incorruptible in his rule. Again, in chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah says that his name will be called the Prince of Peace. Isn't that what we need right now? Jesus is our peace. The Hebrew, Sar Shalom. The one who brings fulfillment and righteousness to the earth. In the midst of a world ravaged by sin, the almighty God of the universe planted himself in the womb of a teenage Girl in Palestine to be born as an infant. He became as vulnerable as anyone could possibly be by laying aside every vestige of his kingship. He blended in. But this did not by any stretch diminish his lordship. Isaiah again says a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and then what's he say? And the government will rest on his shoulders. That's lordship. He is called Lord. Jesus is called Lord no less than 747 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. The book of Acts alone refers to him as Lord 92 times, while he is called Savior only twice. There is little question that in the early church, the lordship of Christ was at the heart of the gospel. People from every walk of life are looking diligently for a savior, aren't they? Everybody's looking for salvation in something, just as they were when Jesus was born. They're searching everywhere. They're trying everything. But most people are not looking for Lord. They're not looking for a Lord. Because they're their own Lord. Let me give you a little dose of biblical truth. You can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. Someone has rightly said he is Lord, and those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. And as Lord, another promise of Christmas comes into view here. The second one. God is not only with us. Say it with me. God is for us. God is for us. This is the promise of his personal protection. Romans chapter eight. I love it. I love this passage of scripture. Always comes to mind at this time of year for some reason. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That's it. <laughs> That's it, is right. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he was raised, Who is was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You no, know, God, Jesus is interceding for you right now. He ever lives, Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our Lord. Amen. God became man from heaven to earth, from riches to poverty, from glory to shame. He appeared as a servant, performed the office of a slave. He was regarded as a slave. He humbled himself even to the point of death on our behalf. Death on a cross. Now, if that's not love, I don't know what is. If that's not the ultimate Christmas gift, I don't know what is. And now he sits at the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession for us, it just said. He is our advocate who steps in for us whenever an accusation from the enemy is made against us. What more could you and I want? Yet when God became man that first Christmas, he came with nothing. He had no rights, he had no riches, he had no respect, he had no recognition. I don't claim to understand it, but I do believe it. Why is it, it seems, that at this time of year, every year, things get reversed and man becomes God? A God. We live as though we're entitled to more than Christ received. And who are we to demand our rights, respect and recognition for ourselves when the only man who ever lived on the face of the earth who was worthy of all of that did not even demand it himself? We need his grace more than ever. It's a little controversial for you, but one blogger brought it home quite convincingly. She says, ever witness a kid digress into complete meltdown mode after his parents refused to buy him that new video game? But I want it. It's mine. Give it to me. Titlement can get pretty ugly, huh? Especially at Christmas time. The only thing more embarrassing than watching a little kid throw a fit is watching a grown-up throw one. If you don't play religious music at your store, we're going to boycott it. We demand that that major scene be placed in front of all government buildings. How dare you say happy holidays to me? I want to speak with the manager. I want it. It's mine. Give it to me. I'm not sure when or why it happened, she says, but in some circles entitlement has been declared December's Christian virtue. Suddenly, it's not enough that Americans spend millions of dollars each year marketing the birth of Christ. Now we've got to have Merry Christmas on a banner in front of every parade and an inflatable manger scene outside of every courthouse, or else we'll make a big stink about it in the name of Jesus. Having opened the gift of the incarnation of God with us, we've peered inside and we've shrieked, This is not enough. Where are the accessories? We want more. This is a strange way to honor Jesus. She writes, "Who, being in the very nature God, uh, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant." Jesus didn't arrive with a parade. He arrived in a barn. Jesus wasn't embarrassed or embraced by the government. He was crucified by it. Jesus didn't demand that his face be etched into coins or his cross be carried like a banner into war. He asked that those who follow him be willing to humble themselves to the point of death to serve rather than to be served, to give rather than to receive. What a tragedy that history's greatest act of humility is being marked by petty acts of entitlement and pride. Don't tell anyone, she says, concludes. But sometimes I wonder if the best thing that could happen to this country is for Christ to be taken out of Christmas, for Advent to be made distinct from all the consumerism of the holidays, and for the name of Christ to be invoked in the context of shocking forgiveness, radical hospitality, and logic-defying love. The Incarnation survived the Roman Empire not because it was common, but because it was strange, Not because it was forced upon people, but because it captivated people. Let's celebrate the holidays, she concludes, of course, but let's live the incarnation. And this can only be done, mind you, through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of a third promise of Christmas, the last one here. Because God, for those who have placed their faith in him, has promised to be in us say it god in us the promise of his personal presence with us in us john gospel he records the words of jesus in john 14 verse 23 Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In 1 John, chapter 4, in verse 11, John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and he in God. Isn't that great? It's very common to hear during this season the oft-repeated verse in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Yet as nations rise against nations, and the streets are choked with violence, and marriages and families are racked with relational strife, and our minds are full of turmoil, question must be begged, where can we find peace? Peace is found in a personal relationship with a child who was born in a little town called Bethlehem. That often quoted verse announced not universal peace among all of mankind, mind you, but the arrival of the one who would bring peace to men. Luke 2.14 is more accurately translated, and you've heard me say this before like this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's a far different sentiment, isn't it? That slightly changes things, doesn't it? That means that we can only experience a deep, settled peace today, even in the midst of war, in the midst of a violent world, when God is pleased with us. And how? Would God possibly be pleased with us? Well, God is pleased with us when we have entrusted our lives to his son, Jesus. Not by our good works, not by our attempts to create a better society, but by receiving God's gift of peace, who is Jesus. He offers peace from God to all who have received his grace. He brings peace with God to all who surrender to him by faith, according to Romans chapter 5. He brings the peace of God to all who walk with him continually. And this one will be our peace, says the Old Testament prophet Micah, referring to Jesus. And he is. He is the only one who can bring peace between feuding nations and estranged spouses and bitter siblings and polarized races. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can bring peace to your soul. How's your soul, by the way? Has he brought peace to it? Because that's what people need. That's what you and I need. I once ran across one of the saddest headlines I think I've ever seen in my life. Maybe you saw it. Headline read like this. Abused as a child, woman tries to rent a family for the holidays using Craigslist. University student, William Jessup University student posted an ad on Craigslist asking to rent a family for the holiday season. The ad written by Jackie Turner reads, quote, I am looking to rent a mom and a dad who can give me attention and make me feel like the light of their life just for a couple of days because I really need it, unquote. To say, the article goes on to say, to say Turner comes from a broken home would be an understatement. On the outside, it looks like I'm the American dream kid, the 26-year-old said. But I have a backstory that most people wouldn't believe if they looked at me today. Jackie has been physically, sexually, and emotionally abused since she was a child. and To escape it, she spent years living on the streets, which in turn created even more problems. I was in a gang. Life on the streets, fighting, doing drugs, just making a mess of my life, she said. And when she posted the ad, she was a presidential scholar at William Jessup University with a scholarship and a 4.0 grade point average. But, like she said, that's what you see on the outside. There's still something deep inside of me. She says, there's this void. My biological parents aren't here and it's kept this hole inside of me. She noted she'd be willing to pay $8 an hour just to sit, just to listen, just to cry with me with no strings attached. I've never felt the touch of my mom hugging me and holding me. I don't know what it's like to look in my dad's eyes and feel love. Instead of hatred. See, Jackie Turner is one of thousands of people who have a void deep in their soul that can only be filled by the promise God offers through the incarnation of Jesus. Christmas, as obvious as it it may sound, is the celebration of the birth of a Savior on the pages of history. Yet not just a Savior... The angel announced to the shepherds that he was born to be the Savior for all people. Is he yours? How is the state of your soul today? In John 14, Jesus said these words. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Exactly what Jackie Turner needs and all those like her. God is with us. God is for us. And through faith in Jesus, God is in us. The promises of Christmas are anchors for your soul. They give us hope, a hope both sure and steadfast. They give us promise. We need to show him to the world now. The world needs to see the Christ of Christmas, a humble Christ who identified himself with us and gave himself for us, a heavenly Christ who desired to dwell within us, who wants to fill that God-shaped void in our lives that no earthly cheer can satisfy for more than a couple of hours. They need to see an honored Christ before whom one day we will all bow our knees and proclaim his name as Lord. Something the late Adrian Rogers said in one of his sermons, I think forms a fitting conclusion today. Especially if you've seen the movie First Man that just recently came out about Neil Armstrong. Some years ago, he said the United States sent a capsule to the moon and for the first time a man, Neil Armstrong, walked on the moon. The president at that time said these words, quote, The planting of human feet upon the moon is the greatest event in human history. Unquote. Adrian Rogers says, I mean no disrespect, but he was totally wrong. (laughs) You can hear that big voice shouting that, right? The greatest event in human history was not planting human feet upon the moon, but when God came to a manger in Bethlehem and his feet were planted upon the earth. That's the greatest event in human history. That's what we call the incarnation. And so as you celebrate the birth of Jesus, I ask you to consider carefully this life-changing truth that God has sent His Son, not only to be the Savior of the rest of the world, but He sent Him to be yours. Let your troubled soul be healed, let your imperfection be transformed, and let the hope of Christ's coming fill you with his presence and his peace and his joy because that baby born so many years ago who is coming again will change your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life change that you bring through your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, your son. Father, thank you for preserving all of that in your word for us, but more than that, by sending your Holy Spirit to not leave us as orphans. Father, I pray that if there's anybody within earshot of this message today that does not know a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they would make that decision today in their hearts, where they sit, where they drive, where they stand, wherever it may be, Lord God, that they would cry out and recognize the disturbing truth that we are sinners, but we have salvation by grace. Grace and mercy of Jesus the Savior and Lord, born in a Bethlehem stable so many years ago, and who, by the way, is coming again. We look forward to that day. Be glorified. Be honored. In Jesus' name, I